A Nobel Prize is one thing, but having your middle finger enshrined in a museum is really the pinnacle of success. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week on the show, we answer a student's question about how to balance research with studying for prelims. Uh, hey, Dan. Yeah. Did, did you say prelims? Oh, I, I did say prelims. Are those coming up soon? I haven't studied at all. I can't do this podcast. Uh, you should probably still stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, Episode 9. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of life in the lab and the research culture. Welcome back, Dan. Thanks, Josh. After that intro, I am in desperate need of a beer. <laughs> we are settled down from the prelim talk. I was very frightened. I had flashbacks for a minute. I know. I definitely had some uh, PTSD prelim moment there. Um, yeah, what are we drinking this week? You picked this guy up. This is Weatherburn's Tavern Bristol Ale from Williamsburg, Virginia. Yeah, this is from Ale Works Brewing Company. We just learned that you can only get it in Colonial Williamsburg. They only brew it for that particular historical venue. Yeah, so I apologize for the specificity, the geographical specificity of this one. But if you're ever in Colonial Williamsburg... Yeah, just pop on by Colonial Williamsburg. <laughs> it's an easy drive from everywhere. Uh, I got to be honest, this beer is not that good. So you should probably... Well, not go just for that, but Williamsburg's lovely. But it's a it's supposed to be an old timey beer that so they claim that they added extra malt and hops, which is what they would have done to ship beer overseas from England to the colonies. So the extra sugar, I'm guessing, plus the hops have some antioxidant values. Um, I think this is the origin of the the IPA originally as well, is that it had to be shipped warm, no refrigerated ships at the time from India to India. Ah, so that the the British. I guess colonists in India could have hot, bitter beer. I don't know what the what the idea was there, but but here they've used some sugar to help preserve it. Yeah, it's extra malty. That's for sure. It's dark too. It is. It is. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna drink it. We're gonna plow through. Yeah, you might have for, a little bit for left you guys, at the end of this. Yeah, for you guys, we're gonna do that. So don't feel bad that you're nowhere near Colonial Williamsburg and you can't get this beer. I guess. So. Um, Dan, there's something I've been thinking about this week. Okay. Cautiously optimistic. Galileo. Galileo! <laughs> you did, <laughs> you didn't impression. know I was going to do that, did you? Yeah. Is that how he talked? Uh, sure. That's where that came from. Uh, so, yeah, I was thinking about Galileo this week, and it actually came about when you did your word of the week at the end of last week's show, and I won't... I won't spoil that one. You guys will have to listen to the end to find out the, the answer to the etymology puzzle. Nice setup. I like that suspense. That's right. So now everybody's just skipping this whole part to go to the end. Um, but anyway, it had to do with uh, poisonous berries. And it got me thinking, wait, wasn't, wasn't Galileo forced to eat some poisonous berries? Yeah, and I decided you were thinking of Socrates and Hemlock, but it doesn't matter. You still looked up Galileo. Yeah, there were no poisonous berries except maybe in the Hunger Games. Um, Same thing as Galileo. <laughs> Both important to our times. So I did, I did some reading um, about Galileo this week, and actually I learned something new that was really cool to me and I think is worth sharing. Fellow, fellow scientist, that's good, yeah. Fellow scientist. There's a lot of cool themes with Galileo. You guys should spend some time this week reading about Galileo. I think it was a lot harder to be a scientist back in the day. But probably a lot cooler. I mean, they didn't know anything. Yeah, everything was new. It was probably yeah. easier, right? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, not, I don't think it was easier, but I think everything you discovered was probably much more foundationally impressive. Well, you know, I feel like now, as a scientist, if you put something out there people don't like, they either don't cite it or you have to issue a retraction. Back then, they would kill you or excommunicate you. So that's worse than a retraction? <laughs> I guess it depends. I guess it depends. Uh, but what I learned uh, about Galileo was actually he did not... Uh, he was not forced to eat poison berries or hemlock, um, but actually he was just put under house arrest. Just for... thrown from a tall tower onto <laughs> a spike. No. He was put under house arrest um, for having the audacity to insinuate that the earth actually revolved around the sun. They didn't have ankle bracelets, did they? How did they know where he was? Uh, those had not been invented yet. Um, so actually, apparently while he was under house arrest... Um, he published one of his finer works called Two New Sciences, uh, which was a summary of something he'd done four years before. So I guess the moral of that story is, if you want to really be productive in your writing, just get yourself put under house arrest. Yeah, and, and I think blasphemy is a great thing to be arrested for. Yeah, well, so, so that's the thing. A Catholic church um, who actually, the Catholic church seemed to be Galileo fanboys for quite some time until this whole uh, Earth is not the center of the universe thing, and they took that the wrong way. Uh, excommunicate Galileo, put him under house arrest, condemned him of heresy, um, etc. And so, instead of burying him in a really cool place once he died, um, they actually decided, well, we can't bury him in the church. So they actually buried him in this small room next to the church, kind of in the crappy part. Church, church adjacent. Yes. Yes. Location. Location. Adjacent location. to church proper. Uh, I guess. I guess if you're the church, you don't want to have the practice of burying burying people heretics heretics uh, in the church um but i guess later um you know the church came around and they'd put up a monument to him and they're like let's move him but for reasons unbeknownst to me when they moved him they decided to uh cut off some of his fingers and remove some teeth was there a lot of him left to move at that point? I mean, I don't know how long it was. It was, it was nothing but fingers and teeth. Yeah. At that wow. point. Uh, but anyway, uh, here's the fascinating part. This is this is what I think is worth noting. This is what caught you this week? Yes, yes. So what I'm not suggesting is that you go to Colonial Williamsburg on your next summer vacation. But where you should check out is you should go to Florence, Italy. And you Lovely should, this time of year. Yes, and you should visit the Museo Galileo which also rhymes. Yeah, very good. And there you can check out on display the middle finger from Galileo's right hand. Wow, so it's like a perpetual FU to the the church, I guess. I That's don't know what's right. Going on Galileo's <laughs> infinite FU. Next time you want to be <laughs> passive aggressive to somebody that's being mean, you just like, uh, there's a church in Florence. You should visit Galileo as a message. <laughs> that's right. That's gonna be uh, that's gonna be the newest comeback. Is uh, why don't you go take a long ride to the Museo Galileo? Got <laughs> a message for you there. <laughs> I think that 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 burn would kind of fizzle on the vine. But who knows? Because you know you would appreciate it, and I would appreciate it, and all hello PhD listeners would appreciate it. Who knew Galileo's middle finger on display? Science, science. So that's really. Uh, if you're if you're an up and coming scientist out there, I think a Nobel Prize is one thing, but having your middle finger enshrined in a museum is really the pinnacle of success. Yeah, move over Nobel Prize. I've got Galileo's finger on my shelf. So I think that's a great segue into prelims. <laughs> in what way is that a segue into anything? 
So, Dan, we actually uh, we got a question that came in this week about prelims. We would never talk about prelims on our own. I have uh, literally blocked it out, but let me read the question. Um, so, the, the email came in from Kateria. It says, Hello, Joshua and Daniel. Great podcast. It is really fun to listen to during the tedious bench work. Which hey, wait. I thought we had said no headphones in the lab. I think half an hour a week is fine. Okay, so we actually... we do encourage you to listen to the Hello PhD podcast. And nothing else. During lab time. I think that's acceptable. I think that's fine. Yeah, you're going to learn something. It's part of your training. Yes. Anyways, she goes on to say, I will be taking my prelim at some point this semester, and I was wondering how I can increase productivity. I want to have data, but I need to read a lot. At the same time, I need to focus on the parts of the projects that are producing. It seems overwhelming at times. How did you do it? Hmm. Um, again, I have no rec- I have a vague recollection of prelims in my department, and I remember being very stressed out trying to remember the equation to calculate how many coulombs were moving through a sodium channel under given like concentrations of different ions in the solution. I, I don't know why this was something that was really important for my uh, movement from from one part of graduate school to another, but I bet I bet that's stuff you've really taken with you in life. I have definitely taken it with me somewhere. I think I took it to a church in Florence. <laughs> so, Dan, you have completely blocked out your prelim experience. I actually remember mine quite well. Okay, go on. So, in my department, our prelim was structured as an NIH-style grant. So, we had to write a full full grant. And we got six weeks to do it. So, we actually were required to leave the lab for six weeks. It actually made you leave? Go under house arrest. Oh, good. I like this theme. <laughs> and uh, and write up this grant. But the here's the ki- here's the kicker. It could not be about any topic anywhere related to our own project. It had to be totally different. And to make it worse, we had to research not just one but two potential topics unrelated to our research, which we then presented to a committee. The committee would then choose a topic, unbeknownst to us, put it in a sealed envelope. And on the day the prelim period began, we would we were given the envelope and we would open it up and we would find out what our topic was and then we would begin writing for six weeks. I for some reason I don't remember my own prelim at all, but I remember you like <laughs> stressing out about getting this sealed envelope of doom. It was terrible. It was like some people sat in a room, some faculty sat in a room and thought, how can we torture graduate students the most? So the thing I also remember about this was the amount of time that I spent researching these topics that were unrelated to my thesis project, I knew way more about these other random topics than I knew about my own uh, than my own project, which I think is is somewhat unfortunate. Um, so, so I turned in this. I did my written part. I passed that, which is great. Uh, but then we had the oral defense. So you're not done. This was like a multi-part uh, process. So then we had the oral defense of it, and there was a guy in my lab who it turns out, um, you know, he was really great at um, the technical details of, of experiments. He was a, a methods guy. He was a techniques guy. I'm not a techniques guy. I was, I'm more of a big picture guy. And so he had done his prelim previous to me, and I'd asked him, I was like, so what's the orals like? He was like, oh, it's all big picture stuff. Don't even worry about it. Of course it was for him. For him, right? What I didn't know at the time was the direction in which your orals go is the direction where you are the weakest. And so I thought, oh, orals is all big picture. 
I'm great with big picture. I don't need to study this. And so I get in there. I can sense this going in a great direction for you. How much big picture do you think they asked me? One question, probably. The first question. Yeah. They're like, oh, he's got that. Let's move on. Let's talk about, could you draw how mass spec works on how the How many coulombs <laughs> are moving through the sodium channel? Yeah. Exactly. And so uh, I was fortunate enough I did pass, but uh, I went oh, to you the... you had to draw how mass spec works? That was one of my... That's cool. I like that. <laughs> it was not so cool at the time. Uh, so I actually went to the chair of my committee afterwards, and, and I was talking with her, and <laughs> she just looked at me and said, so that didn't go so well, huh? Wow. <laughs> So I will never. I will Did never you cry that. in her presence or uh, wait till you got home? I waited till I got home, yeah, but wow. that definitely stands out as one of the low points. Well, in but graduate you, school for you me. passed. I did pass. So they didn't care. So who cares? No, no. But did they not care about no. the oral part? They just. I guess to I, I guess I did well enough, but it was stressful. I mean, this is my broader question because, you know, everybody takes these, and I, and I understand that it's not just the biomedical sciences. In in all PhD programs, there are qualifiers or prelims or whatever. And and supposedly it's to demonstrate competency, but but so what? So what happens if you don't demonstrate competency? In is it a, is it a weed out process? You know, I'm not sure. I definitely remember. I don't remember if it was true or if it was lore. But back in the day in my department, I remember at least people thought it was it was commonplace for half of the students to not pass. Although that doesn't mean that half of the students failed. It just means that a lot of the students were given this middle ground uh, outcome of a rewrite. Purgatorio for <laughs> the Purgatory of the prelim. Yeah. And basically that meant, which actually is pretty terrible, uh, the, the student would have to, um, you know, they could edit it, rewrite it. And at times, I guess, um, actually do it again the next year. And so... So you're, you're effectively hamstringing the students for a longer period of time so they have to divide their focus. Aren't you making them less effective? Yeah, and, you know, I happen to know that since then, my department has, has fundamentally changed the prelim where actually students can write on topics related to their research now, and there's not quite this. I think what it does is it cuts down on the significant amount of time that we were out of the lab and pouring so much energy into learning about things that were in no way beneficial to our PI and to our project. And so I think enough people complained at the loss of productivity, like, hey, let's put all this, let's direct all this energy our students are putting in into something that's going to be a little more beneficial to their training. Yeah, and, and maybe it's, it's simply an exit point where uh, the trainee and the committee can agree, like, you know, this isn't the right program for you, or maybe... Um, you don't want to continue. I, I'm not sure what that looks like. It seems like it's still a pretty negative thing. But if it's not meant to eliminate 50% of the students, then I'm I'm still curious. Is it just this tradition that we all do because we've always done it? Yeah, and I guess, you know, formally, um, what is the prelim? So the prelim, also known as the qualifying exam, um, is really the, the gate with which you must pass through to officially become a PhD candidate. Right, and so you're right. The prelim at times, the qualifying exam, has become an exit point. Sometimes a student, um, that's a good moment for them to decide, "Hey, this isn't what I want to do. I'm not going to go through this process. I'm going to exit completely, or try to exit with a master's degree." Um, or a student, you know, really does come up against the qualifying exam as a barrier um, that they they don't get past and then often will exit with a master's degree. And it probably depends on when it happens. So in my department, it was at the end of the first year. I think yours was the end of the second year mm -hmm. after classes were done. 
So it may serve different purposes at different universities based on when it's positioned. I think it can be kind of a turning point where you have now completed your classes, you've demonstrated a competency in writing in some form or critical thinking, and now you're going on to do your research and hopefully you'll finish up in two more years. Yeah, you know, I do remember as traumatic as my prelim experience was, this feeling I had, I can still still remember it quite well. Coming into the lab uh, on the Monday morning after I'd finished my my oral defense, so the prelim was totally behind me, classes were totally behind me, and I thought, wow, as a third-year grad student, all I have to do now is research. Dun, 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 dun. What if you like classes? I liked the classes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I will say um, at, that feeling of of refreshedness that I felt as a third year that wore off about the time it was a fifth year. Yeah. Or <laughs> and then and new half, hoops, right? new hoops show up with uh, committee meetings and trying to get your dissertation done. I'd be really interested to hear from the listeners about what role the prelims play in your program. I think it's probably different at different universities and in different types of programs. So um, please email us podcast at hellophd.com. Is your program's prelim designed to eliminate you know, 30% of the students, or is it kind of a, you know... A rubber stamp? A little rubber stamp, or everybody gets there, but they some of them take a little bit longer. Tell us how it, how it's done where you are. Yeah, and we would love to hear prelim horror stories. That Maybe that'd be a great... Or great stories, I guess, but those are going to be less exciting. Boring. Yeah. I took my prelim, and I aced it. Yeah, people read murder Jerk. mysteries. They don't read... Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, but the other thing about the prelim is they're so variable. I mean... I know even at our institution, uh, you know, 14 or 15 departments that I'm somewhat familiar with, uh, the prelim varies wildly from department to department, anywhere from these extensive grants that students have to write, whether it's on a topic related to their research, whether it is exactly a, their research proposal, or where it's some sort of exercise more like a, a traditional exam where students are given some papers they haven't read and they're asked questions like a traditional exam style. Yeah, write a, a critical dissection of this research article or whatever it is. Yeah, in some departments this takes weeks, like mine. Some departments it's just a matter of a few days over the weekend. So I think it's a vastly different experience depending on um, where you are, which really makes you realize you know, if there's so many different ways of doing it from university to university, and even from department to department in the university, what is it really measuring? What's it really good for if there's not really a standard? That says to me that we haven't really agreed upon even what this is for and why we're doing it. Yeah, so so ideally, what would it be in your mind? I mean, to me, it seems like there should be, if if you're going to have this tradition, if you're going to have this part of the graduate experience, it should be serving some purpose. And I don't think it's bad if that purpose is um, an exit opportunity, um, but I think it should be the right exit opportunity. It shouldn't be because you were terrible at taking bubble sheet tests or whatever it is. So do well, you have an ideal for what it should be? I actually do have an opinion on this. And that is when I do think back on, especially the written part of my prelim. I mean, if you think about this, um, you know, I had to write a full grant on my own, research this topic, uh, that happened to not be a topic that I was going to then do research on. But in the middle of my six-week prelim period, I actually went to a national meeting. And interestingly, I knew so much more about my prelim topic 
then I knew about my own research because I had poured myself so much into reading the literature. I had even emailed other people in that field to find out what experiments they had planned and get their advice on what I was proposing. And so when I was at that meeting, this is true, Dan, I went to more talks related to my prelim project than my own project because I'd poured myself so deeply into that field, I understood it. I was actually excited about it. Yeah, you learned about it, and so you cared about it. I did, and I understood it, and I actually got excited about the things I was proposing because I had put so much thought into it. Now, if only you were going to research that topic for three more years. Exactly. So what happened? At the end of six weeks, I turned in this document, and then what? Nothing. I had to completely set that aside, all that time, all that energy, all that knowledge, not just in the six weeks, but if you think about the months previous to that, that I'd had to do background reading and research the, the proposal. And so what I think is, what, I guess, what a missed opportunity, right? Yeah, arguably, it, it made you better, theoretically, at doing research on a topic. And it made you, it forced you to interview people and it forced you to think critically about a, a subject. But... Um, was the breadth that it introduced really valuable? Or could you have gotten those same skills by doing your own topic, basically? Absolutely, which would have then had some real-life benefit down the road, like during the entirety of my graduate school career. Because let me tell you what I did not do. What I did not do was, as soon as my prelim was over, when you're exhausted, by the way, I did not then say, hey, I'm going to pour that exact equal amount of time and energy and effort. Yeah, I'm going to take another six weeks off of lab so that I can do this for my own project. Exactly. So to come back to your question, do I think there's an ideal way to do it? I do. And I think that it is to have the prelim period actually be a time to focus on really delving into the background and the, the field of your own specific project. And then your oral defense could actually be something that often graduate students do at a different time in their career. Um, have their topic approval meeting or actually get their thesis committee together for the first time and say, hey, I'm presenting to you, this is the project that I'm proposing to do to get my PhD. You may have just successfully cut six months off of every graduate school term. That that weird middle period between when you complete your prelim, you're exhausted, you're kind of like phoning it in the lab, and and the time when you choose a committee and you form a project and you meet with them. I mean, those, there are six months, eight months, sometimes a year between those two. Things. Absolutely. And to circle this back to Kateria's question, you know, what that really did for me during that time was it completely halted my progress towards my project, right? And I almost had to start from scratch after that time away, focusing on my prelim. And so, you know, one of the things Kateria was asking was, you know, she's trying, she's got a prelim coming up. How does she balance doing all the reading for her prelim? and also really keeping her project going. And I think that's really hard to do, um, especially if they're unrelated exercises. So assuming that that is the case for her, and I assume it is because of, of the way she phrases her question, I almost think you have to look at the prelim and realize it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of work for a short period of time. There's going to be plenty of time to generate data after the prelim's over. It's a necessary hoop you have to jump through, so you need to do what you need, do what you have to do to get done with your prelim now, do as well as you can on it, and then move on afterward. Yeah, it, it sounds like it's, yeah, we've talked about what could make it better, um, but the likelihood is that's not her situation. And so get through it and recognize you've got time afterward 
Um, it's better to to get this done and not get into that purgatory, that limbo where you didn't quite pass and now you've got to do this kind of remedial process where it's going to take more time out of lab. Um, better to, to focus on it, get it done. Now, I suspect not all um, mentors and PIs understand the stress and the time it takes to prepare properly. That's That's absolutely true. So I think you know, I think one thing that you can do is is have good communication with your PI. And so, you know, I think, one, you have to realize for your continuation in graduate school and for your ultimate um, efficiency of progress, you need to get the prelim done as, as efficiently as possible, as you were saying, Dan. So you want to knock it out the first time. Yeah, first time is the best time. Yes. Um, so I think, you know, if you feel like you need some extra time and effort to put into your prelim, don't forget, you are a student. If you're a graduate student, you're a student, and doing your prelim is a requirement of being a student. And so you shouldn't feel bad about taking time to prepare for your prelim. You know, I think what you want to do is if you're going to be out of the lab doing some extra reading, doing some extra preparation, you need to be upfront and communicate with your PI that that is why you're, you're gone, right? That is what you're working on. If you feel like you're getting a lot of pushback, you know, then I think there are and this is true for a lot of situations, there are other people who can advocate for you in the department. So often you'll have a, a director of graduate studies who is probably overseeing the prelim process and graduate training in general in your department. Yeah, that hope is you often, get a good one for the year you're taking the prelims. Hopefully you will, but that's often a good person to get to know who can often advocate on your behalf or can make sure that you know faculty aren't misbehaving. Um, I know that was important in my department where you know, our department expected us to be gone for six whole weeks. That's pretty extreme. And you can imagine how PIs might want, might be tempted to say, well, you know, you're not really going to need all that time. Why don't you come do some experiments? Yeah, you still have Saturdays and Sundays to work. <laughs> but it was really up to the, the d- director of graduate studies to kind of enforce uh, that students were given the latitude they needed to study and do well. Because it's actually not good for the department either if lots of students are, are not finishing up their prelims. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be a hit to productivity to have a a whole cohort of students of the same year be out for six weeks at the same time. Yeah, um, and I want I want to point out one other thing, and that is um, whether we're talking about prelims or anything else, um, universities and departments ultimately, as a graduate student, they want you to succeed, right? Um, I really, and again, you guys can write in if this doesn't isn't true for where you are, but at least in the sciences and situations that I have seen. these aren't meant to be weed outs um, because if you think about it, it wouldn't make sense to do that. Think about how much money and time has been invested in you by the time you're a first or second year graduate student. We've talked about how much money was thrown at us for the interview process, right? They're flying you somewhere. They're feeding you. They're treating you well. Um, then once you get there, there's a lot of investment in them paying you while you're doing lab rotations. And then, you know, your research mentor is devoted this time and money and, and has a lot of incentive for you to do well um, as far as um, making progress on his or her grants. And so people want you to succeed. So you just need to be upfront and honest about what you need and what you think you need to to be successful on the prelim. And you can make sure your, your mentor understands, just like you do, that this is a temporary situation. You need to put the time in now so you can very efficiently get it behind you and then really move forward um, 110% on gathering data. So you think she she'll have time to get her data later, um, and and freeze the cells or or have the your friend in lab 
you know, kind of keep them alive for you while you need to get your work done. Yeah, I wouldn't want you to do both things halfway, right? Let's get the prelim top priority right now, and then we'll make research top priority once it's in the rearview mirror. All right, well, thank you so much for writing, and that was a fascinating discussion about a part of my mind that is totally gone now. Can we do the word origin? That is something very fresh in my mind. Yes, let's do the etymology. Okay, so last week's clue, if you'll recall, is people who consume nightshade berries may have their lives cut short. What chemical compound seals their fate? Now, let's just take a moment to remember who did not consume nightshade berries. Galileo. Uh, The answer this week was the chemical compound is called atropine. And you may have heard of it. Um, It is a competitive antagonist for muscarinic acetylcholine receptors. So they use it to treat certain types of poisoning. Um, But it has a lot of interesting effects. It is named for Atropos, which if you will remember your Greek mythology, there were three Greek goddesses of fate and destiny. Do you remember this from, I don't know what, when they teach mythology. I learned it in fourth grade, I think. I'm drawing a blank. Okay. Well, so they believed, the Greeks believed that there were these three goddesses that kind of created and, and measured your life. So Clotho spun the thread of your life. Uh, Lachesis measured the length. And then Atropos had these shears and she would uh, choose the mechanism of your death and end your life. She actually cuts the thread with her shears. So uh, that's how we got to the clue. It's um, this chemical compound atropine is in the nightshade berries. So they, people who consume it have their lives cut short. So that's a reference to Atropos. Um, and what chemical compound seals their fate? That was a reference to the fates. And interestingly, if you want the super meta word origin, atropos is also the Greek word meaning inflexible or inevitable, which is how they obviously view death. Well, there you have it. I'm not done with atropine yet. Oh, <laughs> but wait, there's more. You know, this is a this is a, a berry, and actually atropine is, is produced by a lot of different plants. Um, it's been used since the 4th century BC for treating wounds and gout and to make love potions. Um, but it is said... Wait, 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 wait. Are there really love potions? I think so. Go get some nightshade berries. No, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> do not listen to anything we say on the Hello PhD podcast. It could be dangerous. Um, I think it's really fascinating uh, that atropine uh, extracts from henbane, Egyptian henbane, um, Cleopatra used them. She would put the droplets in her eyes, and the effect of this uh, acetylcholine antagonist would cause her eyes to dilate, her pupils, and she believed this would make her look more desirable. Fascinating. So that's why my optometrist does that. I think that may be exactly what he's doing. He's got nice shades in the back, and he kind of squeezes one into your eye each time. Maybe it's <laughs> the same. On. We should look that up. Somebody write in and tell us whether that's a similar compound. I'm on to you, Doc. Exactly. Maybe he, <laughs> is he staring at you longingly while he does the exam? Yeah, and he always asks me these really leading questions like, Better one or two? Oh, wow. So romantic. A or B. So romantic. All right. Well, the clue for next week, uh, if you are ready, Josh. I'm ready. This dew-loving insect has a noticeably black stomach. I'll read it one more time. This dew-loving insect has a noticeably black stomach. Now, remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue. And once you get it, you'll find that the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer email it to puzzle at hellophd.com. I will randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler a gift card. Fantastic. Dan, this has been a great show. I noticed there's quite a bit of uh, Weatherburn's Tavern Bristol Ale still in your glass, sir. I'm, I'm nursing this one. What can I say? 
I think the patient has died. <laughs> well, we have had a good time being with you this week. Uh, if you like what you listen to, go to iTunes. You can give us a rating or a review. We read those. Those mean a lot to us. We love your feedback. And it helps other people find out about the podcast. Absolutely. We would also love to answer your question on the show like we did today. Uh, you can email us, podcast at hellophd.com, or you can tweet at us at hellophd. We're on the Facebook as well. You can find us there, and we would love to hear from you. If you don't like the podcast, there's a church in Florence that we have for you to visit. We'll see you next week. See you next week. <laughs>